0: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Books Networks. This is a joint production of the History and Native American Studies channels. We're here today with Assistant Professor of History at Oklahoma State University, Douglas K. Miller. He recently published Indians on the Move, Native American Mobility and Urbanization in the 20th Century, uh, published by University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to the show, Professor Miller. Hello. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. So before we dive into the prompts, let's uh, first uh, discuss a little bit about the cover selection for your new book.
1: I chose those, those images, um, try to put Native American peoples right sort of in the center of the story that I wanted to tell um, right up front from the cover, sort of the first thing that most people are going to see related to the book. Um, I wanted to convey that this is going to be a, a people centered study. Um, most, most of us as- aspire to that in, in history, of course, history is fundamentally about people. So that, that should sort of be taken for granted. Um, but a lot of, you um, a lot of scholarship on Native American urbanization and specifically the relocation program and sort of the ways that, that people have, have sort of talked about this subject and argued, it about, argued about it, oftentimes um, sort of get lost in statistical questions, um, program mechanics, things of that nature in a way that um, if, if they don't sort of dehumanize the story, they at least don't seem very, very people driven. Um, so I wanted to really approach this subject not so much focusing on um, sort of the program itself, which is at sort of the center of, of the book and sort of where I began, um, and sort of the merits of the program and and, and federal policymaking and things of that nature and, and migration statistics and so forth, and instead really approach it from more of a social history perspective, um, talking about um, you know, thousands of Native American peoples from across um, the United States who, who, who made this decision or felt like they had no choice but to make this decision to move to cities. So I just wanted to put some people right on the cover. Um, I especially like the image of, of the woman being picked up by the car. And on the door, you can see it says Federal Motor Pool. Um, and then there's a second image of a family Uh, in the back seat of a car with a father standing outside and they're getting ready to depart on relocation too. And maybe sort of one final comment about those images on the cover of the book and and where I was going with the story is that I wanted to talk about um, how Native American peoples um, actually got to cities in the first place. So in, in a lot of the, you know, otherwise great scholarship on the subject, sometimes Uh, the story is told almost as if Native American peoples just sort of um, wake up in the city one day. Um, We don't have a lot of background information or details on how did Native American peoples even get from the reservation to uh, Dallas or Chicago or Los Angeles or something of that nature. And well, somebody from the BIA typically went to their front door and picked them up and drove them to a train station or a bus station. And so forth so so within all of that right there on the cover i was i was hoping that those images would start to tell the story inside
0: Now, what prompted you to study Native American urbanization in the 20th century, especially given your argument that urban relocation could be just as regenerative as degenerative, and that Native peoples achieved a degree of decolonization by harnessing a historically indigenous survival strategy, mobility? And what was the temporal and spatial scope of your source base? Um, yeah, let me...
1: Well, let me sort of answer the second part first if that's okay and and, and put that into play. Um so I took uh the, the temporal and spatial scope of my studies is sort of much um longer and wider than um what you know scholarship that is that has preceded my book and that I'm taking sort of a very um, bird's eye view, um, sort of a panoramic view. I think I say in the book, a wide angle view for thinking of sort of a movie camera lens or something of that nature. Um, looking, looking widely across, um, native American peoples living within, um, the United States. So, so it's not a, it's not a site or a destination study. It's it's not a study about Dallas or Chicago or LA or San Francisco and so forth. Specifically, we have a lot of really wonderful scholarship, um, on particular cities um seattle albuquerque los angeles chicago and and so forth so i wanted to tell more of a national study that that demonstrates more of a shared experience across tribal lines in the 20th century something that that most most all native american peoples um, especially in uh the post-world war ii period could identify with in some capacity is people leaving the reservation for jobs and and social um and education opportunities so I wanted to look widely and see if I could if I could discern some some sort of larger um, patterns and cause and effect chains and historical outcomes and just stories in general that that we might miss if we just look at one particular place. And then temporally, um, I took a much longer view of the subject, um, one that goes all the way back into the late nineteenth century and sees um, the sort of. Uh, the boarding school experience, um, the sort of reservation confinement experience as being an important part of where this story really begins um, much more so than the post-World War II period when federal policymakers come in with this idea to move native peoples to cities. So, so in order for um, the story that, that I thought I needed to tell to make sense, I couldn't start in 1952 and I wouldn't, um, tell the story that I was seeing in, in my research materials, if I just talked about one particular place. So to, to sort of now circle back to the, to the first part of this question, um, why, why, why study this subject? Um, So, um, so I'm an, I'm a non-Indigenous scholar um, and I grew up in a place that had, um, and still to some degree has no contemporary native American presence whatsoever. Um, I grew up in the Quad cities, um, the Illinois side of the Quad cities, just along the Mississippi river, straight West of Chicago and Moline, Illinois. And this is, um, these are the old, um, winter, um, grounds of Sac and Fox people and Black Hawk chief Blackhawks people who fought to defend their homelands against the United States in um, the first half of the 19th century. And so there's, there's sort of, there's Black Hawk bank, there um which is you know really offensive if we think that through blackhawk savings and loans bank and blackhawk college and blackhawk hotel and blackhawk um this and that but i didn't i didn't know any native american peoples growing up i didn't study it in school in any meaningful way i didn't really know anything about the subject Um, i was an undergraduate student at the university of minnesota fast forward uh, into the um the 2000s and i just sort of i was a history major but i wasn't taking it very seriously And I was just sort of taking every history class in the books. And one day I ended up in uh, Native American history class with uh, with Jeannie O'Brien. And I just really became intrigued by the subject. I'm not sure exactly why, um, other than it's just something that seemed really interesting to me. And I probably had um, a lot of sort of, you know, Non Indian um, naivete about the subject, again, growing up somewhere without really knowing any native peoples or knowing anything about them. And I became, in her class, I became especially interested in the American Indian movement, um, which was founded right in Minneapolis and St. Paul where I was going to school. And um, these were quote unquote urban Indian peoples for the most part who founded this movement. And we did a whole unit on AIM in class. And one day I went to to Jeannie's office after class and I said, hey, what what happened to the American Indian movement anyway? Um, And she said something to the effect of, uh, well, why don't you try to figure that out? (laughs) And um, that set me on a path of being interested in the American Indian movement as a research subject. And I thought that I was going to go to graduate school to write a thesis and then eventually a dissertation um, on that subject. So when I got to my master's program at the University of Illinois Chicago, my advisor there um, really encouraged me to, to cultivate a deeper interest on um, urban Indian history and sort of the urban context within which this activism was, was emerging um, and was a little less interested in and seeing me do a thesis on the American Indian movement. And I kind of thought that through and thought, yeah, that's a complicated and difficult subject and a very controversial subject. And, and I sort of, and still sort of stuck in my, um, a lot of ignorance about the subject. I sort of thought at the time, yeah, why are all these native American peoples living in the cities anyway? So, um, you know, I didn't really understand anything that I'd come to write about. So I moved in that area and that felt like a, a relatively comfortable move for me and an interesting move Because in Minneapolis, I did get to know a lot of Native American peoples, unlike when I was growing up um, down in Illinois. And I got to know a lot of people in the American Indian movement in the sort of 2000s version in the Twin Cities chapter. um, uh, Steve Blake and Ferdinand Bellacourt, Clyde Bellacourt and others in that community. So the people, the Native peoples that I knew while I'm just starting to learn this history, I'm sort of two or three years in and I just read a handful of books. They were urban Indians, you know, "quote unquote" urban Indians, and the people that I met and got to know were just sort of—they were regular folks um, concerned about things that were happening in their communities, um, you know, going to work and um, hanging out with friends, and you know, just living lives on on their terms, like anyone who's trying to make it in the city or anywhere in life. So I didn't have um, a deep historical grasp of the urban Indian phenomenon, history and so forth, I just knew a bunch of people who I got along with really well and they sort of invited me in to their community and, and let me hang around. Um, so, so now as, as a sort of a committed researcher on this topic, really getting into thesis work at the master's level and then into dissertation work, um, as I got into the primary research archives and really got deep into the secondary literature on my subject, I started to to become uncomfortable with some of the sort of the general appraisals of the subject of urban relocation and Indian ur- urbanity and urbanization and so forth. Um, because most of the most of the stories that I was reading, most of the histories I was reading um, tended to emphasize two things that happened with urban relocation. Um, either one, there's sort of this prevailing outcome in which Native American peoples who move to cities um, become dislocated and end up on quote unquote skid row and it's sort of a it's a great disaster and either they sort of toil away and and disappear into the depths of the city or they eventually return home as sort of this um you know this sort of fallen Indian in this in the city trope and that didn't correspond um much. At all, maybe with just a couple of exceptions, with any of the people that I had met or, or gotten to know. Um, and then, so the other, the other sort of major way of explaining what the consequences of Indian urbanization were and what happened were that um, not that Native American peoples had had sort of failed uh, because they couldn't adjust to the city, they couldn't grasp modernity and capitalism and technology and so forth but that the the BIA's program um was just another example in a long history of the federal government the united states tricking and luring native american peoples into a really bad situation um without them realizing it and i don't i don't like that version of the story either um because that sort of advances the old swindled indian trope that you know, goes back all the way to the very beginnings of European colonization and the story of Manhattan Island and and, and other examples of that. So so on one hand, there was this sort of strong sense that um, this this doesn't quite make sense with with what with what I've gathered about urban Indian communities and what people have told me. Um, but that's only that's only anecdotal evidence that can only take me so far. Right. I couldn't actually build a study on what I had observed and experienced alone. It was really when I got deep into the archives and started handling a lot of primary sources that told a very different version of this story that I thought I had a way to enter um, this conversation in some new and fresh ways. Um, so so maybe the the short answer to to that question is that um, that's kind of where I started when I became interested in this subject. I, I, I sort of knew urban Indian peoples in Minneapolis and and, and St. Paul. So there was sort of a, a, maybe a natural inclination there to want to work on that as a, as a history subject and, and try to do a good job at telling that story.
0: I see. So during the late 19th century, how and why did the curriculum of the Hampton Institute in Virginia, as well as additional Indian boarding schools, result in paradoxes for reservation epistemologies, ways of knowing, as well as for graduates in labor markets? Also, how and why did graduates who promoted urbanization as a means for racial and socioeconomic lo- uplift in turn contribute to a two worlds binary? Um, Yeah, that's that's um
1: so this is a question that characterizes um, sort of the early part of of my study when we're sort of still in the late nineteenth century, uh, decades before there's ever such a thing as an urban relocation program. Um, this is uh, material that I discuss at length in in chapter one, and um, the Hampton Institute, in particular, um, as I mentioned in the book. Um, And as many people know, was founded as a school for black freedmen in the aftermath of the Civil War, an industrial training school, a vocational training school. Um, So eventually in um, 1878, uh, uh, Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt, who was one of the major um, architects and advocates for the boarding school system for Native American peoples, um, escorted prisoners from Fort Marion in Florida to the Hampton Institute to engage in this. This sort of social education experiment to see if there was a better way to handle. um, Native American prisoners of war um, in the 1870s, if there was a a sort of a way to deal with them beyond incarcerating them or just vanquishing them on the battlefield. So he takes them to Hampton and um, sort of immerses them in these um, in this education program alongside black students. And the primary goals of Hampton for Native American students, um, there were um, three in in particular. Um, They wanted to, uh, quote unquote, build character and stimulate the mind of Native American peoples. Um, Part two was to equip them with a marketable skill. And part three was to make them economically self-sufficient um, which sort of, you know, is part and parcel with, with parts one and two, um, the, the problem, um, that, that should be pretty evident with, with those three criteria for the program is that there's a lot of, there are a lot of, um, sort of false assumptions built into those. Uh, there's an assumption of course, that native American peoples, um, uh, don't have character and that their minds are not stimulated, that, that they're indolent, um, that they don't um, sort of know how to plan for the future, that they don't have any kind of um, acquisitive impulse that will help them survive in a capitalist society. Um, There's an assumption that they don't have marketable skills, that they don't have any kind of um, 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 sort of technical skill that could translate to supporting a family within um, the sort of the United States type of industrial markets and then part three um economically self-sufficient um there's sort of there's some assumptions there that that native american peoples don't know how to fend for themselves um they don't know how to survive with you know, sort of a rapid uh, rapidly growing industrial complex and the onset of sort of new ideas of, of modernity and so forth um so those are all intensely problematic from the outset on how federal administrators, um, such as um, Richard Henry Pratt, were sort of thinking about Native American students and their their potential. Um, the part part three in particular, the self sufficiency thing, is is problematic. Uh, many Native American peoples at the time certainly would have argued, and and maybe this is sort of true today in, in any capacity for all peoples, is that sort of a universal truth that, you know, there's no such thing as a self-sufficient person economically. I mean, who is, who is technically e- economically self-sufficient? Um, what, and, and what exactly would that, would that mean? How would we, how would we know if we were seeing it, um, more problematically, um, you know, independence, which is sort of a feature, um, an essential sort of prerequisite for, for, you know, successful capitalism—the sort of that you're going to improve the individual self to compete against others in your community, in your uh, neighborhood, city, state, nation, and so forth—was um, was very much at odds with. Um, people's obligations to their tribal communities, to their families, to their clans, to their nations, and so forth. The idea that you're going to make it at the expense of other people around you uh, was antithetical to most Native American people's beliefs at that time and and, and still today, I'm sure. So so those are some major problems with Hampton's um, curriculum for Native American people's. And then in a, in a more sort of practical sense, once Native students actually got into the programs there, and this became true with most of the major boarding schools from Carlisle to Chilocco, um to Flandreau and so forth and so forth, is that Native students were, were gaining, sure, gaining vocational skills that um, might not... Um, be as marketable once they finish those programs as federal administrators and school officials had hoped. Um, So so the second industrial revolution is underway at the turn of the century. Um, Job job skill sets are changing rapidly. Many Native American students were emerging from these programs and finding out that what they had learned wasn't as useful as, as what they were promised. Or they might move to a place such as Kansas city, maybe sort of a major city that's near a boarding school. Um, so Haskell and Chilocco aren't, aren't too far from Kansas city. And they might find that while they have these skills that are supposed to be marketable, no one wants to hire them because they're, they're indigenous people. So racism is, is prevailing in these contexts. And finally, um, and, and sort of equally problematic is that these the sort of skills, the lessons that the students were getting were sort of teaching them to separate from their tribal communities. Um, school administrators did not want Native American students to return home during summers to, quote unquote, go back to the blanket out of fear that they would lose everything that they had just learned in these school programs. So so many Native children um, um, were sort of uh, and youths and teenagers and so forth who went through these programs um, were promised a lot um, from these programs that they didn't necessarily want to enter. In some cases, students in these programs were kidnapped and sent to these schools. So many didn't didn't want to be there in the first place, and they come to find that that they're sort of forced into exp- an experience, violently forced into an experience that's going to, um, you know, uh, marginalize them both in their tribal communities to a degree and in the places where they're supposed to go. Um, to find work so 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 that's i mean that story might be exaggerated a little bit in places and it 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 sort of makes me think of a similar narrative that that runs with the urban relocation program later in the 20th century and that's that the people who left um weren't welcomed back um they were um you know sort of portrayed as traitors to their nation um you know, people who left um, the rest of the community in the lurch and were sort of aspiring to help themselves. Um, that um, that's a that's sort of a narrative trope and an argument that was probably a little bit overstated. Um, I think certainly some people felt that way and, and maybe continue to feel that way. And there are sort of real um, issues related to people leaving the reservation. But I I tried in the book to provide some examples of Native peoples, um, especially young Native peoples, being encouraged by their elders to leave the reservation to go and try to find a future um, somewhere else, with the with the sense that they weren't going to make it at home. So um, so maybe this leads me to the final part of of your large question here about the two worlds binary that some native boarding school um, graduates maybe unwittingly encouraged or sometimes wittingly, I suppose. Um, so, so yes, there were some sort of quote unquote progressive Indians in the progressive era in the early 20th century. Some of the society of American Indians leaders, um, most notably, and, and they've been discussed by many scholars who are much more knowledgeable than me about this specific subject um many of them did move to urban areas uh, carlos montezuma sort of a famous example who, who often tends to get propped up in these conversations and I, I regret that i sort of i used him too maybe he's a bit overused as an example um who moves to chicago and argues that um You know, uh, he belongs in Chicago. He can be an indigenous person in Chicago on his own terms. He's a top surgeon in Chicago, not just for Native American peoples, but for anyone who needed good medical care in Chicago in the early 20th century. And he talks um, at great length about how, um, you know, the reservation, reservation life is holding Native American peoples back because of paternalism and because of physical and cultural confinement. And that the people need to sort of engage in uplift practices and remove themselves from those bad situations that the federal government isn't going to help them, that they got to help themselves. Um, But at the the same time, um, you know, Carlos Montezuma and others of his generation, um, you know, argued and Montezuma said something um, like this, um, um, to some effect like this, you know, I can do more help for my people here in Chicago than I can back in Arizona. Um, So what I really wanted to do with with this particular question that you're asking in my first chapter is really set the scene and provide a lot of context for why Native American peoples um, who had gone through the boarding school experience um, just a generation removed from military conquest and people being, um, you know, marched at gunpoint onto reservations, why they might have felt the way that they did. It's not to um, apologize for them or, or excuse, you know, any um, idea that, that Native American peoples needed to leave the reservation at the time. Rather, I just wanted to appreciate their moment in time, um, the, the, the traumas of the 19th century, um, you know, massacres. Of of Native American peoples um, were fresh on a lot of people's minds. Um, there were people who were facing abject starvation on reservations. So I'm trying to uh, be a little more sensitive to these boarding school students who saw urbanity and engaging in the capitalist market as a way forward. When a that's that's what they were trained to do, um, often against their will. Um, B that's what many of their elders were encouraging them to do as, as a way to survive. And and I suppose, C, to sort of appreciate the larger context within which they were operating. So again, not so much to adjudicate their decisions and how they portrayed themselves, but to really appreciate their, um, their historical contexts.
0: Please briefly trace changes in federal policy on employment for boarding school graduates and off-reservation Indians which rose to 13% by 1950, from the Indian Employment Bureau to Commissioner uh, John Collier's 1941 uh, employment directive. And in your response, if you can briefly address uh, why the first, this first generation of so-called urban Indians established urban advocacy organizations and how such organizations en- engaged with labor markets and cross-cultural residents while also maintaining reservation ties.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. And it's um, this is um, this is an area in the book sort of taking a long view of employment networks for Native American peoples or Bureau of Indian Affairs employment networks for, for Native American peoples and how they are part of the urban relocation story. If we take uh, a wider chronological view of the subject, um, it's sort of something I was just, just sort of just starting to wade into. In the book and i think it's a subject that um um some people currently working in the field uh kevin whalen comes to mind as someone who's sort of uh trying to make some some sort of deeper inroads and understandings on this subject so native american labor in the early half of the 20th century and its relationship to to urban centers and, and urbanity so so i'm I, so so i was interested in commissioner of indian affairs um francis loop if i'm pronouncing his last name correctly i'm not entirely sure who was um, commissioner of Indian affairs in the early 20th century, who established uh, the Indian employment bureau as part of his administration, um, which was administered by a native American person by the name of Charles um, Dagonet. and um, Francis loop, who um, is, is, sort of uh, sort of rightly, um, you know, vilified as, as sort of a, uh an indian affairs commissioner during a time when their general role and the general role of the bia was to um, assimilate native american children into mainstream american culture and sort of break up the tribal land base Um, i I was specifically interested in his um, policy on native american employment Um, and what i found was that um, his administration in the early 20th century was encouraging native american peoples to um, get off reservation for employment opportunities to go out and work in beet fields in Colorado, for example, um, to to sort of go out and work, um, you, know, you know, several miles, maybe even hundred, hundreds of miles away from a reservation on sort of temporary labor assignments. Um, but he was determined to, to sort of confine that within uh, rural work opportunities. He didn't envision Native American peoples going to cities for work opportunities um, to major industrial centers, um, simply because he he felt that they wouldn't be able to adjust to city living. Um, he he um, believed that Native American peoples would succumb to homesickness and maybe even homelessness in cities if they moved to. Uh, places such as Chicago and New York City uh, for work opportunities. So, so the point that I wanted to make with him in the early 20th century is that the BIA is encouraging off-reservation employment, but only insofar as that sort of stays within some kind of pastoral or or rural environment where, where the Native American could supposedly still feel at home and, and, and comfortable. Um, this is, you know, sort of um, – um, you know, complete complete nonsense, we, we now certainly understand. But that was the general thinking at the time for federal administrators. Now, moving into um, your sort of 1930s and 1940s and into the World War II period, uh, Commissioner John Collier, who is sort of, you know, arguably the most influential Indian Affairs Commissioner in, in the history of, of the BIA. He, too, um, argued for Native American off-reservation work opportunities as a solution to um, lack of resources on Native American reservations, um, you know, just sort of lack of job training and education opportunities and so forth. And within his vision in the early 1940s, um, he saw, unlike Francis Loop, he saw cities as a place where Native Americans could and should go work. So, so sort of one, I think one sort of interesting Um, sort of insight within the book that that I hadn't really seen anywhere else is that federal administrators like John Collier were talking about an urban relocation program well before 1952 and before World War II started, and that we might have had an urban relocation program in 1942 had World War II not arrived for the United States when it did. So so one final point about Collier then is while he saw urban employment as a viable opportunity for Native American peoples, he didn't see it as a permanent thing. He didn't envision a program in which Native American peoples would permanently move to a major city and never return to the reservation because Collier's goal behind a possible sort of urban employment program from Native American peoples wasn't to assimilate them into mainstream American culture. He was he was quite the opposite. He had sort of very romantic and and often misguided views about Native American culture and wanted them to return to the old ways and preserve the old ways. So he wasn't in it for the assimilation goal um, that that administrators would later appeal to in the 1950s. He saw urban employment as a way to um, for Native American people is to go out and raise some money and bring it back to the reservation to help the people at home. So what I find interesting about that and, and about John Collier here, who is sort of a very complicated and, and frustrating and a highly problematic uh, sort of historical um, agent, is that the vision he had for how cities could be used within Native American employment um, networks was similar to what many Native American peoples ended up going out and doing in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and that's using cities on their own terms for their own purposes, and oftentimes with reservation communities in mind. So an interesting development in how federal non-Indian administrators are thinking about off-reservation employment and where cities might or might not fit into that and how it ended up relating to what Native American peoples ultimately tried to do on their own terms. I didn't answer the the second part of your question, and it's it's pretty important. And I'll, I'll be quick because I I know we want to get into some of the other questions. Um, why did why did the early sort of generation of urban Indians establish their own advocacy groups um, and organizations within the cities? That one's pretty easy to answer relatively quickly, and it's it's simply because um, you know no one else was was going to do it for them. Um, Many Native American peoples who moved to Chicago and Denver and Dallas and Salt Lake City and so forth had to start their own mutual support networks, um, employment tip um, organizations, um, housing co-ops, Indian cultural centers. Of course, we still have Native American Indian centers um, in virtually every major city in this country. Um, Native American peoples had to start these as a way to help each other out and to sort of... Um, appeal to, um, you know, the sort of communal um, support networks that they would have um, practiced in tribal communities back in their ancestral lands and among their people, Uh, because the BIA certainly wasn't doing a good job of helping Native American peoples adjust to city living. Um, Employers were apprehensive about hiring Native American peoples, Apartment landlords were apprehensive about giving leases to Native American families for for a whole host of reasons that that I could get into um, perhaps with with a later related question if you'd like.
0: So what were the goals of programs to prepare native students for war industry employment, and what were chief concerns over urban Indian? veterans and students in the United States, such as Hygiene and Lifeways. In addition, in your response, um, if you can br- briefly address how Assistant Commissioner William Zimmerman's 1944 off-reservation employment program compared and contrasted to Japanese-American internment, as well as the 1945 adult vocational training program.
1: Yeah. Um, so so the boarding schools um, – during World War II, and this was true of World War I as well, um, many Native American boarding schools were uh, supportive of the United States effort um, at home and abroad. In World War II, um, there was sort of a patriotic impulse in many of the schools, and um, you know this wasn't just something that was that was handed down from school administrators. Many Native students supported. Um, you know, the United States cause in these wars and um, men and women in, in service of the United States armed forces just as they had in World War I. Um, you know, there was a sense among Native American peoples that you know, this, is, this is our country too. This is our country first and foremost. Um, Native American peoples are against fascism um and you know have a stake in in world affairs um so 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 not surprisingly um you know many native american students um worked hard in their boarding school programs to learn skills that were going to directly support the united states war effort such as how to build um you know airplanes and tanks and munitions and so forth um some left their school programs to um enlist for service in the United States military and would send letters back to the school talking about their experience. Um so 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 the schools became a place where Native American peoples could demonstrate their own patriotism. Um I'm thinking here of Paul Rogers book Serving Their Country a way for Native American peoples to sort of support um the United States um in wartime on their own terms and sort of for their own purposes. Um through, through the boarding school experience. Um, and certainly, certainly schools encouraged this. I mean, the yearbooks, the training programs and everything ended up shifting over to support the war effort. So so right down to the very classroom in which Native American students were learning vocational skills, they, there'd be a transition to try to help the war effort and prepare people to um, go in to work at Boeing in Seattle, for example, and help the war effort. Um, so, so military veterans, um, from World War II, um, some of them, you know, many of them had come out of a boarding school experience themselves and um, went, you know, overseas uh, to fight, um, you know, either Germany or Japan and and came back to the United States and, you know, argued there's sort of um, there's sort of a similar kind of double V campaign for Native American peoples here. The the victory at home and victory abroad campaign that you um, that um, you know, Black civil rights leaders advocated in the United States um, during and after World War II, in that um, we, you know, we went overseas and fought on behalf of this country and succeeded in, in overcoming um, you know, the nefarious powers. Um, we have a stake in the future of the United States. Um, we fought for the United States emergence as, as sort of a victor and, you know, what would become known as a superpower on the world stage. We put our lives on the line and we want greater um, access to democracy at home. Um, we want um, improved living conditions. Um, we want all the fruits of America's ascendance onto the world stage um, that non-Indian peoples um, are, are achieving by virtue of the United States victory. So many veterans um, returned home to... Um, you know, reservation communities and and saw that um, native many native communities lacked um, you know infrastructure, uh, clean running water, um, you know, indoor plumbing and electricity and decent housing and and um, you know stood up as veterans of the United States Armed Forces and said we can do better for Native American peoples and and we need to um, something similar happened not just with veterans who fought for the United States army, but people who worked in the war production industries during world war two, it's, uh, who ended up getting pushed out of their jobs when veterans returned home, who sort of had this brief period of a couple of years where they were working in major cities, such as Los Angeles or Chicago or Seattle or something of that nature. And they too got pushed out of those jobs and returned home to reservations. And they, you know, they felt that they had demonstrated native Americans, um, you know, potential capacity for, for labor, for belonging, um, and sort of for living on their own terms as Native American peoples within the wider United States during World War II. And they too advocated for, for a better future for indigenous peoples. Um, William Zimmerman's uh, 44 program did I, um, off reservation. That's so, Oh, how does that compare to Japanese American internment? Um, That's kind of, that's a, That's a tricky subject. I mean, it's it's the it's sort of a complete reversal in some respects. So Japanese-American internment through Executive Order 9066 by Franklin Roosevelt and the Roosevelt administration was designed to relocate Japanese-American people um, from major population centers along the West Coast to the United States interior to more rural areas to segregate them, to separate them out and to incarcerate them in no uncertain terms. during World War II, Um, Native American relocation, um, the idea there and sort of what William Zimmerman, the assistant commissioner of Indian affairs in 1944 was thinking about um, was that, um, you know, this was was sort of the opposite. It wasn't about segregating Native American people and incarcerating them. It was about breaking them free from um, sort of a sense of reservation confinement. Um, and helping them um, sort of get into main, the quote-unquote mainstream American culture and get decent jobs. Now there was in, there were internal conflicts within the BIA about this. You know, some some BIA officials said, you know, we've never confined Native American peoples. That's nonsense. They've always been free to to do whatever they wanted and sort of move at 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 will. Um, Zimmerman perhaps represented a, a strong sort of idea within the BIA that the reservations are not going to be able to continue to support the rapidly growing Native American population, um, which was sort of a a fact of the 20th century, a massive population recovery. So that's sort of the resource thesis within the BIA, that we have to move Native American peoples out of rural America, out of the reservations and into major cities, because the land base won't continue to support them. That's sort of the complete uh, sort of inversion of of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II? And it's a good question on your part.
0: So there were these debates among proponents of what would become the Bureau of Indian Affairs' 1952 Voluntary Relocation Program, uh, public social theorists and boarding school administrators. How did uh, people involved in these debates... How and why did people involved in these debates cast reservation Native Americans as indolent and timid, or, conversely, the cultural antitheses of mass post-war consumption?
1: um yeah, that's a That's another really good question. Um, so so perhaps the best answer to that is that this is this reflects a long history within the United States and in even sort of the pre-United States colonial period in which um you know sort of your your sort of you know the settler state uh settler officials um in you know in any capacity will blame native american peoples for the failures of of settler policies um so so um right it's this long, long history of uh, this sort of, you know, sort of racist and paternal and, and sort of patronizing and, and condescending um, um, way of sort of looking at Native American peoples, or I, I guess this is true for, for most any minority group, um, as though, you know, sort of we gave them every chance to pull themselves up and to make it and get a foothold in our society. And, and they blew it. They couldn't adjust. And it's it's their fault um, so that's, that's, you know, absolutely fundamentally false on so many levels. And, and you know, my book, it just sort of takes one stab at, you know, demonstrating that, but, but we, you know, we have a whole uh, sort of, you know, a vast amount of scholarship that, that sort of quickly overturns any notion such as that. Um, so in the 19, in the 1940s, um. You know, sort of this old trend, again, of sort of blaming whatever the federal government was going to do, if it didn't work, it's somehow Indian people's fault. So this is true of the boarding school experience. This is true of the Dawes Act um, allotment program to break up the tribal communal land base and make individual capitalist farmers out of people. Um you know, any kind of attempts at assimilation programs uh, going all the way back to to the eras of of Jefferson and Washington and their visions for what to do about the quote unquote Indian problem. Um, this was no different in the 1940s as federal administrators. Um, responded, continued responding to reports such as the 1928 Merriam report, which was a sort of this vast study of conditions in Indian country, and the reports from other social theorists and social workers and academics and politicians and so forth. And what's wrong with Native American peoples? Why are they so poor? Um, Why are they, um, right? Why, Why is there such a high unemployment rate and so forth? It somehow had to be Um, their fault rather than a consequence of of colonization and and violent military conquest. Historically, it somehow had to be Native American people's fault. So so federal administrators sort of believed in these old racist stereotypes of Native American peoples as being unable to um, support themselves, again, to sort of plan for the future, to to grasp capitalism, to grasp modernity and technology, similar tropes that will continue as the relocation program starts in the 1950s. Um, many federal policymakers simply continue to buy into those, those sort of you know, racial stereotypes of Native American peoples and that, they're, that they represent the antithesis of post-war consumption precisely because, you know, that's not what um, – you know, uh, tribal communal culture was all about. There was a sense, um, this sort of prevailing stereotype um, in the 1940s. This persistent stereotype that you know Native American peoples are going to give everything away if they earn anything. Um, that Native American peoples are supposed to be poor. Right. Later in the 1960s, 60s, Vine Deloria Jr. and others will write against this trope, this idea that being a quote unquote authentic Indian means being poor. That You're supposed to live off the the land and have a meager existence. Um, You know, that's total nonsense, too, as we now well understood. But that's how federal policymakers were still still thinking in the 1940s and into the 1950s. And this is a problem for federal administrators, some of whom argued that, um, you know, as, as the nation was entering the Cold War, that, hey, we have um, communist um, communities right in our backyard um, with some of the Indian uh, tribes that they're, you know, they're sort of natural communists and we have to do something about that. We can't have communists living within the United States. Uh, Paul Rozier writes about this, too, in a really great article called They Are Our Incest. They are ancestral homelands, which was really influ- influential in my thinking here. Um, so, so remember, um, you know, native um, uh, the United States is going to prevail um, now on the world stage in the post World War II context through mass consumption, um, as, as many United States history scholars have written about. Um, consumption was um, central to citizenship. It became your duty as a United States citizen to. Buy stuff to help Uncle Sam, and finally um, another important layer to this is that obviously we're, we're you know we're getting into. Sort of an era of, of new Civil rights movements, continuations Of what had preceded, but some new twists within it New civil rights movements, and talking About a post-war cultural consensus In the United States, that the U.S. Has to stand strong against communism On the world stage And we need to therefore try To have some kind of uh, homogenous American society, so then You know, the old um, Persistent quote-unquote uh, Indian Problem comes up again in the 1940s And 50s, and well, if all these things 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 are happening. Then what do we do with our Native American population? Um, You know, the answer among BIA officials became, well, we have to teach them that they have to work and support themselves and and learn job skills. And we have to get them off the reservation and we have to emancipate them from from being Indian. This will all, of course, um, cause all kinds of serious problems going forward. But that characterized the thinking at the time.
0: How did seasonal employment migrations undermine BIA efforts prior to the 1952 Voluntary Relocation Program? And how did Native self-advocacy, enrollment in urban schools, tribal council criticisms, and the idea that urbanization and cultural persistence were not mutually exclusive, you can address one or all of those topics, um, reconfigure paternal implementation of the program?
1: Yeah, um, this is so. So this is one of my favorite um, parts of the book, I guess. <laughs> um, it, it was certainly one of the things um, <laughs> that I was I was really um, I was really interested, most interested in when I was on the research trail for for several years on this subject. Um, and this is this is actually a fine example. Of, it was sort of think back to earlier in the interview, and I was talking about you know what were are you know, I was talking about handling primary source documents that. That 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 sort of you know showed me um, you know sort of demanded for me that you know, I try to try to add a little bit more to this to the to the story that we've been telling on this subject and and made me sort of question what I thought I was going to write about and the types of arguments I was going to deliver were uh, several just a lot of documents I found um, in the archives about federal administrators, uh, reservation superintendents, writing Washington, writing each other, or just sort of riding back and forth with, with Native American peoples, um, complaining that they can't get relocation to work in their particular community or in their particular reservation because Native American peoples who they're trying to recruit for the programs are so determined to just keep doing things their way. And one of the most prominent versions of this was to continue engaging in seasonal um, migratory uh, labor. So going out on um, fishing trips that could last, you know, weeks and months or rice harvesting or, you know, going hundreds or you know, a thousand miles away to some uh, agricultural job site where the people had been going for decades to um pick vegetables or something sort of these sort of these employment networks that native american peoples had developed on their own terms um prior to prior to the 1950s to support themselves to not um be poor and 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 indolent and so forth and to maneuver within uh the the united states um settler economy and so forth so So, you know, everything that federal administrators had assumed about Native American peoples, not only were they false, but they became a major problem right during the rollout of the relocation program. So, so, so why I became particularly interested in this and and, and really tried to build a lot of of a particular chapter around this, this sort of problem or, or feature of the story is that this is an example of how. I became sort of uncomfortable with the way that the relocation story has, has been told. And that's that, um, you know, this sort of uh, federal administrators come out and they they introduce this program and they hang these posters around the reservation offices and they go out and try to get people signed up for this program and um you know people sort of get tricked into going and uh, thousands of people moved to the cities in 1952 and 53 and 54 and and right the rest is history this is sort of the version that that i've suggested already where and then there's then there's a lot of pain and suffering and dislocation so right from the outset as federal agents are trying to recruit people for this program um they're finding that a lot of Native American peoples, like they get it, they understand what they're being offered, and they're deciding that either that's not right for them, they don't want anything to do with it, or um, they're they have some sort of mild interest in the program, but only if it can conform to their own um, labor prospects on their own terms, um, or. You know, they might um, want to go live in the city for, you know, two, three months and really treat um, the BIA's program as sort of a almost like a paid vacation. Right. So it's not and and then return home because they want to, uh, you know, uh, engage in in wild rice harvesting or something, which is um, not just an economic practice, but an important cultural and community practice. So, so the tables sort of get turned there and the assumptions in which, um, there are some examples that I get into in the book where it's not so much, um, BIA officials are sort of pulling a fast one on Native American peoples and tricking them into going on this program and ruining their lives. There are cases where some Native American peoples are sort of, you know, manipulating the BIA here and, and trying to use the program for their own, for their own purposes. And again, in some cases that came down to, uh yeah I'll go check out San Francisco for a few months and then i'm gonna return home um yeah that so that's um that's maybe one part of that um sort of multi pronged question there that um that I was really excited to write about and and talk about um i'm I'm sort of thinking about the rest of the question there if you wanted to remind me of of one aspect of it
0: um So also, um, you know, enrollment tribal council criticisms, for example, how did that factor in?
1: Yeah, so so yeah, that's important. So 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 again, so I've alluded during this interview on many occasions to um, Native American peoples doing this on their own terms for their own purposes. um, That they're they're envisioning that urban employment. Um, And the relocation program can sort of be integrated into their own ideas about how they can support themselves, how they can improve their tribal communities, how they can support their families. Um, So so the BIA's idea behind the relocation program of the 1950s and 60s was sort of another version of the old um, series of assimilation programs um, those that we saw with the Dawes Act and the boarding schools and so forth—that this is a way to get Native American peoples to stop being Indian. That if we move them to the cities and separate them from the tribal communities um, and put them in you know, public schools, um, that we can make them sort of true American citizens and, you know, sort of virtually make them, you know, patriotic white folks within the context of. Of you know post post post-World War II American society. And that's that's an impulse that stretches way back across space and time. It's sort of the reverse one-drop rule in, in, in race theory, and that you know Native American peoples can essentially become white through assimilation in a way that other um, non-white peoples couldn't. So that's all sort of underwriting the the federal program here. The idea was to have a permanent separation from the tribal communities. But Native American peoples who moved to cities um, oftentimes developed their own employment networks. Um, They kept in touch with each other uh, through what they called the Moccasin Telegraph um, they engaged in chain migrations from reservation communities to major cities and helped family members get jobs, um, get housing, meet other Native American peoples in the cities. Um, they really sort of bonded together um, on sort of a, a sort of a supra Native American identity level and that we're all indigenous peoples here experiencing something similar as a consequence of, of colonization Um, but also right down to the tribal level. So I've more recently been studying uh, Dallas in particular as sort of a a specific urban relocation site. And I found there, for example, that, um, you know, Native American peoples within, within Dallas and Fort Worth were organizing right down to, to the tribal affiliation level, like uh, Choctaw people, for example, in Dallas um, would form their own, um, Choctaw organizations within, um, the DFW area. And they would coordinate with people back home and engage in political initiatives and economic initiatives and education initiatives and so forth. This had, this was, um, uh, you know, this was anathema to what the BIA was trying to do at this time. They didn't want Native American peoples to stay in touch with each other and to preserve tribal community and culture. But Native American peoples found a way to make this work within the cities. And and I provide a lot of examples in the book where they had every confidence that they were going to be able to do that before they ever left for the city. So, so on one hand, some people had to learn... Um, you know, sort of a way to be Indian and to belong in the city as an indigenous person. But many people left reservation and tribal communities with the idea that they were always going to stay in touch with people back home. They were always going to send money back home. Um, they were going to go home and visit on the weekend for, for, um, you know, uh, birthday parties and funerals and, 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 you know, cultural events and things of that, things of that nature. So right from the outset, Native American peoples were trying to um, live in cities on their own terms um, and not at the expense of their tribal communities. So there's just another example of a bigger picture uh, motive within the book to try to get away from um, the sort of division between, urban and reservation Indians, um, which was true and real and important and problematic for for many native peoples, again, but something that I think maybe has been overstated a little bit and something that might play into divide and conquer strategies on the part of the settler state. Um, Many of the people in my book uh, constantly had a dialogue going between reservation community and, and urban community.
0: So, moving moving to the next prompt, what was what was the significance of the male Mohawk brave in quotes uh, captioned caricature in that BIA booklet on relocation stages in your book, and what were federal expectations of female urban adjustment? In addition, from 1945 to 1957, how did approximately 100,000 Native peoples play a proactive role in requesting? And I guess, criticizing assistance during several attempts at relocation.
1: Uh, Yeah. So, so within the book, there's a series of images um, with this um, sort of native, this not sort of, I mean, the absolute, you know, cartoon character, this, this cartoonish, (laughs) uh, this, yeah, this sort of ridiculous cartoonish rendering of a Native American person. And, In the book, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be flip about it when I say, I mean, it kind of looks like like Porky the Pig. It's just sort of this really terrible drawing of this native person that sort of went into this um, this brochure that was to be disseminated to um, you know Native American peoples who were interested in relocation and people who worked within the BIA to sort of help coach them on, you know, what they were going to have to do to help people adjust to city living. And, you know, the, the thing is just ridiculous. And I found so many examples of materials like this. I just have, you know, folders filled with, with these things. And this is, I could have picked any number of these to illustrate this in the book. And this is just one that I picked out because the, the sort of the, there's a longer version of it that's that's like nine or 10 images total. And I just picked out, I think, three for the book. Um, but the whole point of it is to it's it's to show through these series of cartoons of what it was supposed, what was supposed to what was not supposed to happen, but what was inevitably going to happen for Native American peoples who went on relocation. And that's that they're going to get to the city they're going to have no idea like where to go for help or, or what to do. And this ended up being true for many people. Um, they didn't get a lot of information at the BIA office level that, that ended up being especially helpful for them. In many cases they had to turn to each other, but, but again, sort of, so, so back to these cartoon drawings, the idea was that they're going to show up and they're going to need a lot of help. Um, and one you know, one of the most major concerns is that they're not going to understand money. They're not going to know um, what to do with their money when they get paid from their job. They don't know how to save money. Um, they don't know why they might want to save money. <laughs> um, and that somebody is going to rob them Um that they're not going to be industrious, that they're not going to show up for work on time. They're going to constantly run behind. Um, they're going to squander their opportunities. They're going to squander their money. And there's even so some of the cartoon images shows that you know, the Native American laborer who sort of he has a mo He's he's depicted with a mohawk. I don't know if the author, or the illustrator intended for him to be. An actual mohawk person he's just sort of this sort of stereotypical almost like looney tunes again sort of rendering of a native american person and when he shows up for the first day of work like he's walking he's all strident and his his arms are all muscular and he's all excited to go to work and then you flip a couple of cartoon images later and his he's like he's his his muscles have atrophied and his belly is all distended like he's just become lazy and his pockets are outturned and he's He's wondering what happened to his money, um, and and so the cartoon for me, among many options again that it could have used is illustrative of of what federal administrators assumed was going to happen for Native American peoples to come to the city, that they're going to need a lot of paternalism, they're going to need, need a lot of hand holding, we're going to have to coach them on just sort of the fundamentals of existence, um, which I off which I found quite absurd, um, although. It, so I want to be careful here and um, maybe just step back for a second. And I, I try to be really careful with this in the book for many native American peoples um, moving to the city did result in um, sort of uh, a painful separation from tribal communities. Many native American peoples were taken advantage of by creditors, um, by car salesmen, by, um, you know, apartment landlords, um, by teachers and federal administrators and, politicians and just sort of, you know, random, um, you know, people on the street. Um, that's certainly true for many native American people's experience, but there's sort of, you know, there are all kinds of other stories, uh, in addition to that one that characterize native people's, you know, um, um, time in the city and what they wanted out of this program. And so I found this cartoon in particular to just be just ridiculous. And I kind of want my readers to, um, not, not not again not to laugh at it in a flip in a flip way but to just sort of um you know get a sense of just just how just how ignorant um federal administrators were about native american peoples as though they don't by you know 1952 53 and mass that you know native american peoples just don't know what money is um which is just absurd um Most of the first wave of Native American peoples who went on relocation were war veterans, were military veterans who had been off reservation and had experience in, quote unquote, mainstream America. Many of them were boarding school educated people. Uh, Many of them, you know, had been speaking English for a long time and had jobs and made money and they got it. Um, So that's why I highlight this this particular um caricature of of Native American peoples in this program um and at the end in the final frame the the character the cartoon approaches this staircase that has like 12 or 13 steps to how a Native American person can succeed within the United States and it's all the stuff that we would imagine about you know showing up for work on time and saving money and planning for the future and so forth, Um, expectations for, for females, um, for, for native women's in the city, native women in the cities, um, mostly reflected, um, sort of that your, your cold war, um, you know, nuclear family premium. And I, I mean that in the, in the, the sort of, um, 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 you know, in, in those particular, in those sort of cold war terms that, 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 um, the, the, the potential success of urban relocation really depended on women to play the role of the Cold War mother, that she was going to be a stay at home mom, she was going to clean the house and, and raise her children with a sort of, you know, lowercase Republican virtue to support the United States and to be a consumer to buy a TV to buy um, household appliances. And to help her children and her family integrate into her particular neighborhood, she was supposed to be the ambassador for the family within the neighborhood, within the community church, and and so forth, and really help the family assimilate into mainstream American culture. That's what the native. Uh, that's what the BIA's program was trying to promise Native women and trying to sell them. Um, so so it was it was intensely gendered the urban relocation experience. Um, Especially those who went through the adult vocational training programs, most of the men went through programs to become welders, or just to work some kind of um, blue collar job of that nature. And a lot of the women who went on relocation and went through the vocational training programs were put into beauty schools to become hairdressers, and things of that nature. So it was, it was intensely gendered. So not only were Native American peoples who went on relocation supposed to learn about capitalism and urban living, they were supposed to also learn sort of um, standard or prioritized United States uh, gender roles at that time.
0: Please describe how BIA officers' paternal assessments of success and failure interfaced with native impulses for urban relocation, from employment to organizational membership and even even trips to grocery stores. Also, what were examples of hardships faced by relocated native peoples? Hmm.
1: Um Yeah, so 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 the term success I, I kind of build an entire chapter around this particular term, or or at least I try to. And it's not because it's something that, that I pulled out of, of this, of the primary sources in which I, I sort of got above the sources and, and sort of thought in abstract terms about success. Um, although I was interested in that question because anytime anyone does a history of, you know, a program or, you know, something, Related to that, you, you do have to ask yourself, um, well, did it work? I mean, that's just sort of a, a general historical question for something of that nature. So, so one larger question for the book itself, and I'm not sure I answer this particular question. I think that what, what I arrived at and, and what the book does is maybe prepares or at least tries to prepare readers to ask this question, um, Maybe my hope is that, you know, if this book ever got adopted for a graduate seminar or something of this, this, that nature, I would, I would hope that, that students would, would actually ask, well, did it work? Um, You know, I think that I'm, I think I answered that question implicitly in the book, but maybe not explicitly. And I think it's, it's sort of an an important question. Um, but now I'm, I'm digressing a bit, um, on, on this term success, um, because, In the 1950s and 1960s, in the context of the relocation program, it was a term that got used all the time by federal administrators. They were sort of obsessed with with this term success and whether or not they were seeing it with the relocation program. And different BIA officials right up to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs sort of had different ways of trying to answer this question because they needed to prove to Congress that – this program was working. Of course, they wanted it to continue to be funded. Um, there's job security and convincing Congress that this program is is successful. So it's interesting when you get deep into the documents um, to see federal administrators sort of trying to make these gymnastic leaps to prove that relocation is successful. And I became interested in, well, what does that mean and and how do they argue that? And one example of that is the commissioner of Indian Affairs, Glenn Emmons, who was commissioner during the Eisenhower administration, argued that a quote unquote successful relocation is any Native American person or family who stayed in their relocation city for at least one year. If that were the case, then they would make it into these statistical reports on quote-unquote successful, um, you know, reflections of of the program. Um, Whether or not a person stayed in a particular place for up to one year is is a very problematic way of adjudicating whether or not that person had a quote-unquote successful relocation. Um, I'm I'm sure we would agree. Um, So so success for the BIA, at least according to that example, um, was really about permanence it was really about um, if the person stayed then then the program worked if they if they're just staying in the city then they must have figured out a way to survive and again with all the assumptions that we see federal administrators sharing in the 1920s 1930s and 40s we might assume based on those assumptions that that they're thinking that they stayed in that place for a year because they stopped acting Indian that they did um, um, sort of enmesh within their communities and so forth um but there are all kinds of reasons um why that's that's problematic because again, and as i as I stress throughout the book book and as I've done in this interview, I hope is that Native American peoples were trying to use cities for their own purposes um, many moved on the relocation program and never had any um, um, determination to permanently stay. They knew before they ever left that they were going to return home after six months or a year or two years is always a temporary venture for them for some subjective reason. So returning home, I argue in the book uh, should not be a criteria for an unsuccessful, um, relocation. Not if we're looking at it from native people's perspective on what they wanted out of the experience. um, yeah. And then problems, hardships faced on relocation. So you so deeper into this question of success and whether or not the program was working? Well, what went wrong? Well, tons of stuff went wrong. And I make sure to stress this in the book, because, again, I'm not really trying to um, take a side on the relocation program. I don't want to argue for or against it. Um, that's not that wasn't my agenda as a as an historian working on this topic. I, I instead wanted to sort of tell a more nuanced history of the of the subject um. So a lot of stuff went wrong, and I, I make sure to stress this. And uh, you know, among those things, where that the the program was consistently underfunded, administrators within the relocation program were constantly complaining that they didn't have the money to do the things that they promised Native American peoples that they were going to do. There were racist landlords who didn't want to give leases to Native American peoples. They were convinced that they weren't going to pay their rent on time, that they weren't going to go to work that they weren't going to keep a clean home um, and so forth. Um, Native American peoples at employment sites were often, uh, you know, quote unquote, last hired, first fired. So in times of recession, they were the first to be caught. Um There were problems with, with, uh, just sort of rampant problems with racism and discrimination and paternalism within the program and beyond. There were problems with racial profiling on the part of police officers in what became recognized as Indian neighborhoods within the larger cities, examples of police brutality. Um, There was sort of um, a sense among non-Indian peoples that American Indians, um, were you know starting to um, appear to be members of sort of a racialized minority within the United States. This is sort of one larger question that that should emerge from the book um, that I'm interested in as a scholar of 20th century Native American history is how did Native American peoples in the general non-Indian public consciousness become a quote unquote minority group within the United States and what some called a quote unquote entitlement group. Um, part of that story is inextricably bound up at, with, within the relocation story um, as non-Indian peoples in major cities saw their native neighbors as as people who might have been struggling to get by. Um, so there were problems with uh, tribal governments um, on whether or not they were going to allow, ur- quote unquote, urban Indians to vote in tribal elections and if they would be eligible for, for tribal services and in, in health and employment and so forth. So all kinds of problems arose from this that the BIA really didn't do any homework on before they rolled out this program. And again, it's another example of why Native peoples had to develop their own mutual support organizations and Indian centers and so forth to survive this experience and get something productive out of it.
0: So can you please briefly touch on the difficulties uh, with urban re- relocation? Um Beginning with uh, the the more difficulties, beginning with the BIA false advertising and lack of information for both native peoples and federal officials, um, and also the uh, the subsequent uh, cri- subsequent criticisms of the nineteen fifty seven to sixty uh, BIA reformulation of and assessments for relocation again well, that buzzword success yeah. so. Just touch a little bit on the BIA and accusations of false advertising, and then touch on also uh, criticisms uh, thereof, particularly when it comes to success. And then also, if you can, um, how did this, you know, how amidst all this, how did this result in uh, cosmopolitan Indian identities and varieties of urbanity?
1: Yeah, um, so... Um, yeah, the false advertising. So I include a couple of examples of that in the book, and this is another. This is another thing, like the aforementioned cartoon, where I just have just countless examples of this stuff, just you know, stored up in my my research boxes in my office, and I, I could just sort of, I could have just done, you know, sort of written, you know, I could have delivered just sort of two hundred pages of this, of this stuff, and and some of it is just particularly absurd with advertisements like, you know, Indians live like kings in Chicago um, um, come to work, live and play in Gary, Indiana, you know, and sort of portraying, um, Gary, Indiana as some kind of like, you know, utopian paradise or something. And and not to pick on Gary, Indiana. Um, but you know, it's, um, you know, the idea that in the 1960s that, um, you know, Native American peoples are going to move somewhere like that and just sort of ascend to the top of the ladder and have this sort of great um, upper middle class experience was um, certainly misleading and and false advertisement on on the BIA's part. Um, So that's so so the BIA program was selling these images of these pristine um, homes with, you know, your classic cliche white picket fence. Studebaker in the driveway, you know, brand new TV in the living room, um, that, um, Native peoples were going to have, uh, they they were going to be able to buy into, yeah, middle-class America. Um, so, so problematic, certainly in that, um, Native American peoples who moved to cities through the relocation program. So often they were put in temporary housing at first, um. In you know really bad rundown apartments and rough neighborhoods uh, many stayed at, at ymcas for several weeks when they first moved to the cities because no housing was available even though it was promised before they left the reservation uh, many found that they moved to the cities and that the jobs that they were, were promised weren't there um, many were getting put into jobs that didn't necessarily match their skill sets so so in a grander sense um the BIA was always kind of making up the program as it went along. Um, they didn't really do a lot of work on the front end and making sure that they had everything lined up for this to be a quote-unquote success. So they were constantly adjusting to a range of, of problems on the fly, and that meant, once again, that Native American peoples had to do so themselves. Um, one thing that I try to be a little bit careful about in the book, and it's hard to... To sort of prove this um, explicitly, but I I think I can sort of infer quite a bit within the book, is that um, I don't necessarily think that, you you know, every Native American person who went on the program was necessarily responding to some poster that was hanging in a reservation agency office that was showing them that they were going to live in some Great house in some suburban um, paradise. I tend to think that most of the people could read right through that and saw right through that. And again, we're sort of understanding the program on their own terms and seeing what they could could, could get 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 out of it. But at the same time, many Native peoples are on record as saying, Um, you know, the great problem with the program is that they were promised X, Y, and Z, and they didn't get any of that, you know, what I say, these sort of raised expectations and a failure to meet them on the part of the BIA. So the program was oversold and underfunded um, uh, throughout its history, for the most part. Um, Criticisms of the program. So yeah, so this is something else along with, uh, with the sort of seasonal migration and Native people's not buying into the program right away this is an, this is another thing that i found really interesting when i got deep into the archives is just how many native american peoples were personally writing bia administrators and reservation officials to complain about the program um or, or by contrast, to ask for an opportunity to go on it, um, and there are waiting lists on a lot of reservations to go on the program, and people would sort of write and try to get bumped up on the waiting list and state exactly where they want to go for these exact reasons and so forth. So, I became interested in how Native American peoples were critics of the program from the outset, essentially before it even began. Rather than this sort of narrative trope in which later on, several years in, Native American peoples realize that, oh, we've been tricked into another bad situation. Hence the birth of the American Indian movement and uh, the Alcatraz occupation and, and sort of your, your new activist groups and so forth. I see right from the outset, Native American peoples are paying attention to what's happening. They have a lot of information on the program. They're riding back and forth with federal administrators They're engaged with this. They're making recommendations about it. And one important development that comes out of that is that by the late 1950s, 1956, 1957, uh, the BIA introduces a new dimension of the relocation programs and the adult vocational training programs. And this this had the uh, there are sort of two parts of this. There was uh, on on reservation training. So you would enter a job training program before you ever left the tribal community, or there was on-the-job training that would start as soon as you moved into a city. And this is something that many Native American peoples really wanted. Um, They wanted to make sure that they had the marketable skills that they were going to need to get a job in these places. So that's an example of the BIA bending toward Native American people's criticisms of the program. But one unintended consequence of that, that the BIA people heard um, from Native American peoples is, why can't we do some of these things here on the reservation? Um, if we're talking about employment opportunities and creating new futures for Indian peoples, why does it have to be in Chicago or Dallas or San Francisco and so forth? Why can't we move industries to Native American communities, to reservations? And that's something that, um, that um, some federal administrators support it and try to get behind and try to answer that call too, um, with varying degrees of, of quote unquote success. And that's a subject that I'm still interested in going forward, and I'm hoping that other scholars Will we'll sort of continue to take up and talk about and think about more is what's happening on reservations in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and tribal politics and tribal business initiatives and so forth that that are related to the relocation program or maybe um, operating um, apart from it. That's that's a relatively understudied topic in Native American history that I sort of just start to get into a little bit in the book. Finally, the cosmopolitanism um, and and urbanity. Um, what I'm really trying to stress there. Is that um, So So Native American peoples who move to the cities mostly do not have this sort of homogenous, quote-unquote, mainstream American experience that they were promised in these BIA advertisements and, and from officials and so forth. Um, many precisely because they had to find their own way. They had to appeal to each other for support. They had to build their own communities. They had to make Indian cities in no uncertain terms. Um, that through that experience, um, not only did they uh, get to know a lot of other people from other walks of lives, um, not only did they get closer to sort of epicenters of, of politics and um, economics and cultural movements and so forth, but they were able to use cities as platforms for indigenous voices and concerns that they were more easy, uh, uh, that they had an easier time. Sort of um, pulling a seat up to the table, um, getting a seat at the table, a term that many people will use in Native studies um, to be visible, to be audible in cities and to have other peoples who, you know, cities, of course, are, you know, historically crossroads of cultures, of, of, of peoples. So despite their relatively small numbers in cities, many Native American peoples did succeed at making sure that other peoples were hearing that they existed and that they had something to say about the future um, they had something to say about what the country was doing um politically and economically and socially, and so forth so so yeah, um, I guess cities in the most sort of traditional historical sense are are sort of you know often inherently cosmopolitan, and Native American peoples who moved to cities proved that they could belong in that space and that they had an important contribution to make to the people around them.
0: What were socioeconomic causes for quote-unquote reverse relocation and after 1972 repeal of the relocation program the reimagining of indian country and why do you end your book with the life of thomas greenwood
1: um yeah so um so the reverse relocation thing so i sort of addressed this in chapter six and this is where i was trying to add something um new to the to the ongoing conversation from the you know the sort of great scholars who had gone before me on this subject. As I wanted my story to um, end not in the city, but um, you know, back in reservation communities. Um, not because I was trying to artificially force something new into the historiography on this subject, but because I was just seeing so many of the stories that that I was uh, that I was researching ending that way. And I felt like that was sort of a way that the story concluded for a lot of people that we hadn't been talking about as scholars. Um, oftentimes the story is told with Native American peoples end up in the cities in the 1960s and early 1970s, and they're they're angry and they're going to engage in, you know, activism and often, you know, militant activism. And that's, that's sort of the outcome. That's what relocation resulted in. But I saw a lot of people, you know, thousands of people who were returning to their tribal communities away from cities um, precisely because the city didn't deliver on its promise or that not that something had failed, but that again, that some people who moved to cities got what they wanted out of the experience and never intended to stay permanently anyway and wanted to go home for different reasons. So in the 1960s and 1970s, even before the, the sort of you know, the urban relocation program is is terminated, people were already starting to look back home precisely because this is an era of major shifts in the American economy as things are shifting from um, you know, sort of your industrial economy to a service economy in the post-World War II period. Um, the job sector is changing. Cities are becoming overcrowded. Cities are becoming places of sort of great stress and strife in the 1960s. And Native American peoples, Um, As most American peoples at this time are engaging in sort of an anti-urban critique by virtue of their experiences in the cities with unemployment, with bad housing and and so forth and so forth. So many start to uh, look to the reservation, not the city, but back to tribal communities as the future and as the way to go forward and as a place to survive and get out of a bad situation this time, not, um, within a reservation confinement context, but within an urban context. So what we, what I see a lot of and that I I write about in chapter six are people who maybe grew up in the city or they went and got an education in the city or learned job skills that could help them back on the reservation, um, how to conduct an audit, how to run a business, um, how to, uh, you know, sort of engage in politics and so forth. And they could take these skills back and bolster tribal economies and tribal political initiatives. And a lot of the leaders, a lot of tribal leaders then in the 1980s and 1990s were people who had, quote unquote, gone on relocation in the 50s and 60s and used those experiences to be strong leaders back at home because they had left the reservation and and sort of found, um, you know, learned a lot about how, people are doing things, um, you know, in in every conceivable way. I always think of one quote that I use in the book where somebody says something to the effect of uh, the days of the bow and arrow are gone. The new weapons of war for Native American peoples are words, contracts and money. And a lot of the Native leaders of the 1980s and 1990s are people who had gone out and learned a lot about those things um, by working and living in in big cities so reservations tribal communities become places um, for for indigenous futures for a lot of people who were just made by their urban experiences um, ending the book with um thomas greenwood um you know the honest answer to that is that that probably started as um sort of two things were happening there a i had just I researched his file at the Newberry library and no one had ever used him in any meaningful way as far as I saw. And I found his life absolutely fascinating. This is someone who had, uh, this is a Cherokee person who had uh, grown up in Southeastern Missouri down in the boot Hill and eventually made his way to Chicago on his own terms. And he became a leader within the national Congress of American Indians. He was a leader at the American Indian Chicago conference in 1961, he sort of became a prominent figure in, in the national um, you know, Indian leadership scene. Um, so I was really interested in him as a person and as, especially as someone who reflected um, sort of the bigger story that I was trying to tell in the book. And that leads me to sort of part two of why I use him in the conclusion and feature him so prominently. Um, because of my approach with the book and taking a national view and you know, not focusing on one particular tribe, or one particular destination, there's a real uh, sort of peripatetic um, approach to the way that I do this study. And that has its its inherent pitfalls. And I had to make some compromises and sacrifices to do it that way. But I sort of thought of Thomas Greenwood. And I thought, you know, my book is is constantly talking about different people. And I would tell any reader, you know, don't get lost in the weeds. You know, there are a lot of names and a lot of places in the book, but I'm really trying to sort of use them to to tell a larger story. But I think I got to the end and I I knew I wanted to do something with Thomas Greenwood because I find him so interesting. But then I also realized that I wanted to leave my reader with just one tightly focused story about one person and their transformations across several decades and how they related to urbanity and what it meant to be a, a quote unquote urban Indian. So I wanted to make sure that my reader left with, you know, really one good coherent story. Um, and that's that's
0: Thomas Greenwood. So I have one final question for you. What's up uh, for you next? Are there any new projects? Are you going on vacation?
1: <laughs> so I really appreciate that question, and um, especially after thinking hard for the last um, hour and, hour and a half on this. Um, so I, I so I've already I'm already. Um, making a lot of progress on the next book. So I'm, I'm doing, I'm working on a second book now about the history of indigenous incarceration, um, about um, mass incarceration in native American history, um, which is really born from this first book um, um, on, on Indian urban relocation in that I tried to tell with this first book, um, a much more empowering story about Indian urbanization and one that, you know, sort of quote unquote puts Indians in the driver's seat, pun intended, um, and, and tries to, um, um, you know, sort of see um, the, you know, the sort of productive things that came out of the urban experience for Native American peoples, the productive things that they wanted and that, that they um, aspired to and achieved. Um, But through researching this subject, I certainly became aware of, again, some of the really sort of dark and sort of tragic consequences of urbanization. And one of those is, is racial profiling in the cities and how many peoples who moved to cities ended up in prison for various reasons. And in the late 1960s, and really no one's written about this yet, I don't think many people know about it, but I have quite a bit of material on it. And I've started to use it a little bit at conferences and, and, and in an anthology chapter that recently came out. There was part of the urban relocation program that we've discussed in this interview It was supposed to um, be developed for Native American parolees and releasees from prison to go on urban relocation so they wouldn't go back to the reservation and get in trouble again. And I was going to write about that in this book, but then I started to see so much material on it that I thought that this could become my next project. And now it's grown into this really um, overwhelming project that I'm developing on Native American history of of incarceration writ large going all the way back to the colonial period so i'm yet again doing another one of these stories that's going to feel really unwieldy at times and i'm not sure how to pull it off um but that's where i'm headed and i'm also developing a couple of secondary projects that might just be article-length things one on uh, private first class ira hayes the famous world war ii hero um who who appears in Indians on the Move. And I want to do sort of a longer study of him, a scholarly study. We don't really have much scholarly work on him at all, surprisingly, given that he's sort of a Native American celebrity from the 20th century. And finally, I want to do an article-length study on uh, the Native American rock guitarist uh, Jesse Ed Davis, who is from Oklahoma and uh, passed away several years ago, but played with uh, the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton and other people. Um, so that's, that's what I got going on. Quite a few different things there that I'm working on. Thank you for asking me about that.
0: Well, I hope you remember the new books network for those projects.
1: I will indeed. It was a real honor and, and, um, really exciting thing to be able to do this. I'm a big fan of, the uh, new books and native studies series. So to be able to, to do one of these interviews is just
0: really exciting
1: for me. And I really thank you for the opportunity.
0: Well, thank you for being on the show today, Professor Miller. So the book is Indians on the Move, Native American Mobility and Urbanization in the 20th Century, out earlier this year by UNC Press. On behalf of Professor Miller, this is Ryan Tripp for the New Books Network. This has been a joint production of the History and Native American Studies channels. Tune in next time.